interest in the following audio recording produced by Chesterton House, a center for Christian studies at Cornell University. Support for Chesterton House comes entirely from listeners like you, and we invite you to help us continue making the recordings of past lectures available at no cost through a donation to the ministry. You can find additional resources and make a donation at www.chestertonhouse.org. This audio recording is copyrighted and unauthorized duplication is prohibited. I'd like to go uh, f- further with this talk and uh, look at specific matters from the New Testament. Okay, sound in the back? Look at specific matters in the New Testament having to do with the person and work of Christ that bear on the academic tasks defined more uh, generally. So, principles for uh, focusing upon Christ. I said in the first talk that um, evangelicals are sometimes excessive in saying they follow no creed but the Bible. And here, I'm actually going to violate that and go straight to the New Testament passages and leave the creeds aside. But I think uh, underneath, down just a little bit, I think that what what, um, I hope to say is able to relate to the... Historians are just terrible. Well, old historians are terrible at this kind of stuff. So maybe uh, maybe there's a loose, loose cord somewhere here. All right. Okay. Um, so if, if only a fraction of, of, of what uh, I extract from the New Testament passages is true, it then has immense implications for the life of the mind, for intellectual life, for academic work, coming from an understanding of who Christ is and what Christ does. So I've got eight of these, and we'll see how we do time-wise, and I certainly want to hear from you as to how uh, you think uh, following Christ has an impact upon doing what you do as intellectuals. So first, the origin of all things in Christ and the New Testament phrase that I like is through whom he made the universe. The New Testament could not be clearer, and it's clear in many different passages, that um, a Christian understanding of creation must be Christological. In other words, people who follow Christ must have a particular attitude about the created realm. John chapter 1. The Word was with God in the beginning. Through Him all things were made. Without Him, nothing was made that was made. Colossians chapter 1, the passage that we turn to. Uh, Christ is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation, for by him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, the thrones or powers, dominions, rulers or authorities, all things were created by him and for him. Hebrews chapter 1. In these last days God has spoken conclusively by his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things and through whom he made the universe. I think it's particularly significant that we have a from the Gospel of John, from the Apostle Paul, the author of the Epistle to the Hebrews, basically the same statement that all things were made in and through Christ. Lots of commentary, of course, very learned commentary on these passages, but, but the, the affirmation is quite clear. And it would seem to be that the implications would be just as clear. And I think I'd phrase it like this. For a Christian to be engaged in the study of created things is to be engaged in studying 
the works of Christ. Say it again. For the Christian to be engaged in studying created things is to be engaged in studying the works of Christ. Loyalty to the reality of Christ the Redeemer should not require disloyalty to the reality of Christ as Creator. So, human beings can be distracted from what they need to be and do by occupations, by uh, things they work at, but the difficulty is not the things being worked at, it's the attitudes and approaches of, of the human beings. I think I would take from these passages this principle. There's nothing humanly possible to study about the created realm that in principle leads people away from Jesus Christ. Now, how we study it, what we do with what we study, can maybe lead people away from Christ, but not the studying of it itself. Years ago, ran across a wonderful line by the Irish poet Evangeline Patterson, who wrote, I was brought up in a Christian movement where, because God had to be given preeminence, nothing else was allowed to be important. I have broken through to the position that because God exists, everything else has significance. And for evangelicals who stress the redemption found in Christ, if Christ is the creator, if God created through Christ, says something about that which is created. And secondly, and, and quite closely related, and here I'll refer to the at greater length to the Colossians passage, we find, I think, in Scripture the comprehensiveness of all things in Jesus as the Word of God. So, from Colossians 1, in Him all things consist. Let me read this passage, uh, which is, I think, the charter for Christian learning because it's so comprehensive and so filled with uh, relationships that are, that are critical. He, God, has delivered us from the dominion of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For in him all things were created, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. For I want you to know, the Apostle Paul goes on, I want you to know how greatly I strive for you, and for those at Laodicea, and for all those who have not seen my face, that their hearts may be encouraged as they are knit together in love to have all the riches of assured understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery of Christ in whom are hid all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. It was interesting to be at the university meeting in, in Chicago at the end of December to hear, just I got to hear just one of the presentations by N.T. Wright I've been thinking about this Colossians 1 passage for 20 years. And I thought I'd sort of begun to get the handle on it. But he gave a, a, a talk, I guess a sermonette, in which in about five minutes he opened up three or four new dimensions of this passage that I never even thought of. And I thought this was the right kind of humbling experience 
for anyone who thinks that they've sort of mastered the, the scriptures. The, the, the passage is wonderful, it seems to me, because it affirms that the lordship of Christ is related intimately to the salvation he offers on the cross. This is, this is a salvation practice in whom we have forgive, the redemption, the forgiveness of sins. But seamlessly, and apparently in the Greek text, as some of you will know, there aren't many periods. The Apostle Paul just rambles. <laughs> he just rolls right through this. In a passage that is very strong on the redeeming aspects of Christ, you have all these, all things, all things, all things. There's no point, in other words, talking about Christian scholarship without being aware of the need to be a Christian. Um, for academics, intellectuals, it's the same as everyone else. Peace through the blood of the cross is the starting point. But once having seen that starting point, the interwoven connection of saving realities are these other statements. Christ is not just the firstborn of creation, he's the source of everything. And I, I like the, particularly the, 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 the thrones and dominions section of this passage because you move from the created realm, materiality, to what humans do. Thrones and dominion are the exercise of power, history, political science, sociology, psychology. Um, all, all of these matters are at least implied in the statements about the comprehensiveness of, of Christ's work. So, to put it in another other frame, if the apostle says, if we study anything in the realms of nature, the realms of the spirit, we study what came into existence because of Christ. Likewise, if we study human interactions, spiritual human interactions, we're studying what Christ is Lord over. If we study predictability, uniformity, regularity, mathematics, physics, some aspects of chemistry and biology, we're working in the domain of the one who is before all things in whom all things hold together. If we study beauty, power, agency, it's the same thing. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. I like the sermon that uh, I mentioned B.B. Warfield yesterday for his work on Darwin, but he, he one time gave a, prep, a sermon at the start of a seminary year to uh, seminary students at Princeton Theological Se Seminary, and he urged them to uh, uh, do their devotional life in concert with their study. And he had this this rhetorical question. Why should you turn from God when you turn to your books? Or feel that you must turn from your books in order to turn to God? What Warfield was expressing was the comprehensiveness of all things in Christ. I think there's still more because for a Christian, the tasks of scholarship are so closely tied to the unearned gift of salvation. So if Christian learners, Christian scholars, Christian academics do their work, in whatever it is, as those who are conscious of being redeemed by Christ, then there's simply no excuse for arrogance, self-justification, imperiousness, callousness to the needs of colleagues, and I'm sure it's not true for most of you, but one or two of you may have actually encountered these kind of qualities in the academic world. All humans, even academics, remain in need of divine grace, even as they do their academic work.
But then the passage is even more remarkable because it ties in salvation, the lordship of Christ over all things in the church. So the comprehensiveness of all things in Christ is also part and parcel of a passage about the necessity of, of the church. And how people relate to other Christian believers is, of course, going to differ by place and region and Christian tradition. But there, there simply is no uh, possibility of a Lone Ranger type of Christianity or a Lone Ranger type of intellectual uh, soloing in this passage. What, what pulls people together in Christ must be true for the life of the mind as well as for other pr- principles as well. Three, he will never leave you. The Christian doctrine of providence. It might seem that providence is a father divine work rather than the, the, the Christ divine, divine work, especially when we, we uh, uh, think about the, the goodness of God as beginning the, the, the process of, of, of seeing nature as uh, charged with divine significance. But the, where, where providence has a Christological aspect is that so many passages of, of the New Testament emphasize the, the security of the believer in Christ. Uh, the surest proof offered in Scripture that God rules over everything is the divine testament that's ratified by the death of His Son that He will never leave you or forsake you. So a Christian who can believe that in the tumults and the, and the tragedies and the disappointments as well as in the triumphs and the celebrations of life, if a Christian can believe that in all circumstances God is with you, this is existential reason for believing in God and therefore a reason to believe what the scriptures say about the origin of all things in God. So it's, it's, hard, it's a stretch, I think, to, to think about uh, moving from um, security in belief in divine grace expressed for me and the church to self-confidence as a Christian in physical chemistry or developmental psychology. But they're related in, in the sense that a, a, a Christian believer can understand that this personal security that one has in Christ is related to what God has done for the whole of the world. The passage in Hebrews 13 that that has this great statement about uh, I will never leave you or forsake you is actually quoting uh, Deuteronomy chapter 31. Be strong and of good courage. Do not fear or be in dread of them. For it is the Lord your God who goes with you. He will never fail you or forsake you. And this uh, passage when it's quoted in Hebrews 13 has the injunction not to be lovers of money. But it can all, it goes on. Hence, we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not be afraid. What can man do to me? The academic payoff for this confidence is the conclusion that if God rules everything with respect to my salvation, certainly he rules everything concerning the more general events and circumstances of the world. Four, the materiality of the incarnation. And this does get us back to the creeds. The word was made flesh. When we study the material world and the physical qualities of human existence, we are drawn to reflect upon the material aspects and the material character of the incarnation. Again, the word became flesh 
and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. I like what the theologian Michael Williams has written about this passage. John 1.14 does not say that the word became noose or mind. It says that the word became sarks or flesh, the bodily stuff of God's good creation. The word became flesh not in some abstract realm of truth where only minds exist, but in history. Dwelling among us, he was seen by flesh and blood, particular human beings, pretty material stuff, pretty historical, glorious. If it's true that the word became flesh, then the realm that bore the fullest expression of God's character, the fullest expression of God's being, the realm seems to need careful attention as well. Believers will not study the material realm as if it were the only realm or the saving realm or even necessarily the most basic realm. But to know that the material world is the realm in which God revealed himself most fully is to understand something about that material world. Five, the this-worldliness of the Incarnation. It does seem to me that, that understanding the appearance of God in human flesh can lead to a particularly Christian delight in creative human engagement with the world. Um, at the foundation of Christian self-definition is what Paul described in the fourth chapter of Galatians. When the time had fully come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under law, to redeem those under law that we might receive the full rights of son. The full rights of Childness, sonship, daughtership must include taking pleasure in what God has done. I've already alluded to the marriage feast at Cana, but this really is remarkable, right? The, the, the MC at the feast, you save the best till last. So this was the $50 a bottle of wine instead of the $4 a bottle that we drink in our household. I mean, this, this is truly remarkable. Um, a wedding feast and a party manifest the divine glory. Of course, there's much else in the Bible about moderation and, and controlling yourself, but I don't think there's a, a lot in the Bible about not rejoicing in, in the world. There's a wonderful poem by Czesław Mios, the Polish poet who lived under uh, Nazis and Stalinist colonialism that expresses this joyfulness. He wrote, if God incarnated himself in man, died and rose from the dead, all human endeavors deserve attention only to the degree that they depend on this, that is, acquire meaning thanks to this event. We should think of this by day and night, every day, growing stronger and deeper, and most of all, about how human history is holy and how every deed of ours becomes a part of it, is written down forever, and nothing is ever lost. Because our kind was so much elevated, priesthood should be our calling even if we do not wear liturgical garments. We should publicly testify to the divine glory with words, music, dance, and every sign. I'm a Presbyterian. Genetically, we Presbyterians don't do too much dancing. But this is a challenge for even us stodgy Christian folks. Um, God entered the world. It was wonderful. Six, the personality of the Incarnation. 
who do people say that the Son of Man is? We have in the 16th chapter of Matthew the uh, interchange that begins with this question, who do people say the Son of Man is? And then Peter answers, you are the Christ, that is Messiah, God's anointed one, the Son of the living God. Traditionally, Christians have pointed to this passage for signifying the meaning of the Incarnation, but in recent decades, some Christian thinkers have pointed to this passage as revealing what in Christ God shows us about human nature. So if in Christ we learn about God, which we do, so in God become human, we learn about humanity. This has been a particular uh, point of em- was a particular point of emphasis for Pope John Paul II, where um, the kind of personalist Catholic theology he, he studied as a young man came to expression in several notable teachings, um, including some work at the Second Vatican Council, stressing that concentration on Christ reveals humanity as well as divinity. Here's a quote from the quotation from Gaudian at Spes in the Second Vatican Council. In reality, it is only in the mystery of the Word made flesh that the mystery of humanity truly becomes clear. For Adam, the first man, was a type of him who was to come. Christ the Lord was the new Adam in the very revelation of the mystery of the Father and of his love fully reveals humanity to humanity and brings to light his most high calling. For by his incarnation, he, the Son of God, was in a certain way united himself with each human being. I'm not a psychologist, and I think by temperament there are people who do self-reflection and those who don't. Most historians are in the former rather than the latter category. But certainly the personality of the Incarnation, the fact that Jesus was an, a, a real human being, opens up levels of, of study and possibility for, for those who do have a calling to study the human personality and how it works. Seven, the beauty of the incarnate Son. Again, in the 17th chapter of Matthew, we have the story of the transfiguration. Jesus, it says, began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. And in this context, we have Jesus taking three of his disciples up to a mountain where we read he was transfigured before them and his face shone like the sun and his garments became white as light. The the, the disciples, of course, are flummoxed and Peter makes an inappropriate suggestion, but he's, he's, he's trying to respond to what is not just the manifestation of God in power, but the manifestation of God in beauty. Moses, the great lawgiver, Elijah, the prophet of righteousness, are talking with the Son of God. It's over, and, and the, the three are overwhelmed with a bright cloud from which comes, of course, the voice, this is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. The disciples fall to the ground, but Jesus comes to them, touches them, urges them to rise, and then most remarkably says to them, have no fear, have no fear. So again, the manifestation of the glory of God against which, in the face of which, all human beings acting humanly must be afraid. And the Son of God comes and says, have no fear. The primary purpose of the passage certainly must be that 
Jesus is the one in whom the code of divine law and the great work of prophetic revelation comes to a culmination. But the meaning of this experience for uh, the experience of beauty has been well pointed out by contemporary and earlier Christians. Here's part of a modern hymn by Carl Daw, which catches, I think, the burden of the of experience and also some implications for what we might draw with it. The hymn goes like this. Light breaks through our clouds and shadows. Splendor bays the flesh-joined word. Moses and Elijah marvel as the heavenly voice is heard. Eyes and hearts behold with wonder how the law and prophets meet. Christ, with garments drenched in brightness, stands transfigured and complete. One of the great uh, Christian voices in the whole history of American uh, development was, of course, Jonathan Edwards, who devoted devoted much of his thinking life to um, conceptualizing and then uh, trying to promote a, a, a lively sense of the harmony, the beauty of Christ. Um, uh, Edwards is an important figure for Christian intellectual life in, in, in the United States because he really did it. He didn't just talk about it, but 12, 13, 14 hours a day, he did it. I mean, I'd like to know a little bit about what Mrs. Edwards thought about Jonathan's uh, intensity, but he, he was the real deal when it came to probing problems to their depth. In what I would consider uh, his, the, the great culminating works of his life, the, the, those of you who are not familiar with this, it's not too important, but he, he wrote two relatively short tracts, one concerning the end for which God created the world, which was an intense compilation of biblical materials, and then the nature of true virtue, which was a, quite an abstract inter, in, engagement with the main philosophical uh, thinkers of his day, but he put them together as two, uh, the lovely title, Two Dissertations. Um, never became bestsellers, but a wonderful combination of biblical and ethical reflection. Along the way, he spelled out how conceptions of beauty were so important for his understanding of God. He wrote, among other things, For as God is infinitely the greatest being, so he is allowed to be infinitely the most beautiful and excellent. And all the beauty to be found throughout the whole creation is but the reflection of the diffused beams of that being who hath an infinite fullness of brightness and glory. The link to the person of Christ was the glory that burst forth on the Mount of Transfiguration. On the whole, wrote Edwards, it is pretty manifest that Jesus Christ sought the glory of God as his highest and last end, and that therefore this was God's last end in the creation of the world. We think of Jonathan Edwards' properly as the preacher of some hellfire and damnation. If, however, you had to read at some stage in your academic life, Edward's sermon, Sinners in the Hands of the Angry God, you've read like 2% of the emphasis of, of his life. Much, much more of the emphasis of his life was how the beauty of Christ draws people. The fear of God pushes people. The, the beauty of Christ draws people. And that theme was actually developed much more than his pretty ferocious statements about hellfire. This reasoning that Edwards uh, promoted can't be an airtight defense of Christ-centered aesthetics, but it certainly gives 
uh, a lot of clues to how those who are engaged in studying proportion, beauty, um, aesthetics may take their cues from the person and work of Christ. And eighth, eighth and, and finally, the, the particularity of the incarnation. The particularity of the incarnation. This is a complicated matter to me and one I'm not sure I can explain uh, as well as I should, but it, it is striking that um, in scriptural revelation and then in the great creeds and then the great theological considerations of Christ's work, um, the details of this particular life in a particular place, the Middle East, particular time, the rule, rule Herod the Great, these details have a universal significance for humankind. Because God revealed himself most clearly in a particular set of circumstances, in a particular set of circumstances, every other particular set of circumstances has the potential for infinite meaning. There are many accounts in the book of Acts that point in this direction. Think of the day of Pentecost, which reversed the linguistic disorder of the Tower of Babel and turned human hubris into common human praise. At Pentecost, the Holy Spirit's testimony to the resurrected Christ enabled people of all languages to hear the good news in their tongue. When they heard this sound, the blowing of a violent wind, a crowd came together in bewilderment because each one of them heard the apostles speaking in his own language. In our day, you can make a lot of criticism of, of Christian groups, the way they go about their activities. But I, I think one of the most remarkable developments in, in sort of modern evangelism is the Campus Crusade for Christ Jesus film. Over a thousand languages translated, and I, I'd, I'd be very happy to give way to Drew, but I've looked at this film and it just doesn't seem like a really good movie to me. Just pretty, pretty. I tried to stay awake and I'm not sure I succeeded but for uh, tens of millions of people around the world, the first time in the last, last 20 or 30 years, the first time they have heard somebody from the outside, part of the global world culture, speaking to them in their mother tongue has been this filming of the Gospel of Luke. This is a tremendous feature of the new world Christianity and the new shape of Christianity that we see in the world. Later on in the book of Acts, linguistic diversity began to move toward what we might call cultural diversity. And here we have the story of Peter and Cornelius, which is, again, one of these remarkable stories that you just wonder if something like a modern sense of humor isn't behind the Apostle Luke. Do this, Peter. No, Lord. Do this, Peter. No, Lord. And of course, we're reading it. We say, well, Peter, you know, you just don't say, no, Lord. <laughs> so what Peter is encouraged to do is to think that the way of life of Cornelius is a way of life that can bear the good news. And the way of life that Peter had been trained in in bearing the good news was not necessarily dismissed as a way of life that could bear the good news but Peter was set, urged to add another cultural expression as being able to bear the good news. I think we move even further when we get to the Apostle Paul in Athens. 
In chapter 17, Paul's come for the first time to Athens where he's struck struck by the diversity of altars to foreign gods. And he proclaims in response the message of the one true God who has been manifest in raising Christ from the dead. And in this remarkable sermon, he includes these words. From one man he made every nation of men. They should inhabit the whole earth. And he determined the time set for them and the exact places where they should live. God did this so that men would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. So Paul's statement about the divine creation of the individual cultures of the world is combined with the statement that in these individual cultures, God is not far from each one of us. Modern missiologists, I think, have been uh, leaders in, in pointing out how once the Christian message, oftentimes the scriptures, move from one cultural setting to another cultural setting, the translators lose control of the scriptures. And those who now read the scriptures for themselves in their own particular setting, these are the ones now that determine for themselves what the, the Bible means. I've been greatly influenced by Andrew Walls and Laman Sana, Leslie Newbegin and other, Dana Robert and other people who studied these matters. And what is clear from their work is that the, uh, the Christian gospel always works to dignify and challenge new cultures into which it comes at the same time. Andrew Walls talks about a pilgrim principle. The gospel always calls us out of where we are. But along with the pilgrim principle is the at-home principle. The gospel is at home in every culture into which it comes. The implications for Christian learning from such a double-sided picture of redemption. There's one redemption for humankind. This redemption can be adjusted and adapted in all human cultures. I think the implications for Christian learning are are really mind-boggling. In particular, Christian believers with this understanding can negotiate calmly through the perils of modernity and post-modernity. Where do Orthodox Christian people stand? On the modernity side, of course. There's one universal faith for all people. But maybe... On the post-modernity side, all cultures are capable of understanding and bearing redemption. All cultures, therefore, have an intrinsic dignity of their own. Modern, modern, postmodern. I think Christian believers can just smile and go have a cup of coffee because it's not our battle. Yes, of course, there are universal aspects to which uh, study must be given. There are universal aspects of humanity that demand the closest attention. But every particular expression of human life is close to hearing the word from God. And again, I think I would return to the expression of the Chalcedonian Creed, to the material that are in the Apostles' Creed, the Nicene Creed. The particularity of redemption has universal effects. God's work in the world speaks to all people with the voices of all people, but it says one thing. Different aspects of the one thing are understood in different languages, different cultures, but God says one thing. The particularity of the Christian story of redemption is meant to teach the truth about redemption, but it also communicates the truth about 
particularity. To confess that Christ experienced a very particular life in first century Judea and that he is the universal savior of the world offers a scholar who believes in the Christian story extraordinary intellectual balance for approaching the study of particular cultures in their particular uh, places. Well, we've raced over these principles, I'd call them, but there's many of them, about many of them you could say a lot more, and I'm sure there are other principles that could, could be expanded upon from the scriptures. For those who believe that the way of salvation is found in Christ, finding in that proclamation all sorts of reasons, profound reasons, to take seriously the intellectual task of the modern university and then many that are not included in the modern uh, university. This afternoon, I'd like to go on and, and take the specific uh, Christian teaching about the nature of the atonement in Christ and try to be meddling and, and try to su- suggest at least a few ways that one might think from a great Christian teaching out to some of the practical things that we do as scholars. And uh, I'll be interested to see what you have to say about that. But first, let me pause here and get your comments and questions and reflections upon these matters of Christ-centered motivation for being serious about academic life, the life of the mind.